gathering of the saints together, Lord. I know it's precious in your sight. And Lord, we're here for you. We're here to learn of you, to worship you. We're here to give you your praise and glory and honor. Let's do your name. I pray that you'd help us to focus tonight. I pray, Lord, that we just leave the world outside for this moment and uh, that this would be a time where we'd offer ourselves to you fully and completely, that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would impart the truth of your word to us, Lord. And I pray that as you do that, you would minister to us, Lord, that you would grow us, that we wouldn't be the same when we leave, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before you sit down, can you say hello to a couple people, please? All right, you may be seated. Come on in. All right, have a seat. All right, so uh, yeah, grab your Bibles, and there's Bibles underneath the seats if you don't have one. And turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. Yes, it is. So we're traveling through the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We're getting insight into Paul's teaching, the things that he would do as he would go on his missionary tours that we've covered in the book of Acts, and he would go and, and teach and as he's teaching, we've, we've been able to see that the book has been broken up and really the essentials of, of Christianity. So he starts off in chapter 1, and I know you guys got this all down now. Chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, talking about what? Sin. Who said that? Andrew. Good job, man. Yes, he drums and has the answers. Nicole, I'm surprised I didn't hear Nicole. Yes, good job, Nicole. Okay, well, you're going to get a chance here in a second. So we start off talking about sin, and the conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So just with that, think about all the truth that helps us live our life in this world. All the understanding to know that, that we're fallen, that the world is fallen, that uh, we're people in need of something to help us because of our sinful condition. There's not one group of people that's less sinful than other people. Just, just solves so many problems there. But thankfully, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, there's a big shift that occurs. And that shift is continuing from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5. And that's where he talks about what? Salvation. Nice. You got it. You're ready, huh? So then he transitions into talking about salvation. 
And that's all the way from 3, chapter 3, verse 21, to through chapter 5. And so I have been encouraging you to really spend a lot of time there because it's just, it's just amazing. And he, he, he talks about the salvation is from a different source. It's not a source that we find in us because previous to talking about salvation, he points out that we are hopeless in that condition of sin. And so we find out that there is a, another way to be right with God. And that's through our sins not being accounted to our account. And the reason that can happen is because Jesus paid the fine for our sins. So we can access the work of God in Christ through faith in Him. And it is that that makes us new people. It makes us born again. It makes us new creations in Christ. And so our relationship with sin is different. Before sin controlled us, it was our master. When we become born again, God becomes our master. So now we're slaves to God. Now we have sort of a new lease on life. Now we've been born in a spiritual way where before we were, were simply people who were controlled by the desires of our flesh and the desires of our mind. And then we become born again. Now we're spiritual. Before we weren't spiritual and now we're spiritual. So we have a new way to live. We have a new relationship with sin. Sin no longer has um, dominion or power over us. And because of that, then we have a standing with God. We, I've been calling it our position with God. We're positioned in Him in a way where that cannot be changed. And the word that we've been using to explain that, what, that we find in the Bible, is that we have been, past tense, justified. And that's an unchanging condition. Uh, that means that our, we've been declared innocent and we will always be declared innocent. That is our position and our standing before God. And it's because we're in Christ. So God the Father sees us as in Christ. And that therefore He sees us in perfect standing because Christ was perfect. However, there, there's this transition that takes place starting in chapter 6. So we talk about sin salvation, and then what happens after we're saved? How do we live as saved people? So we're saved, we're justified positionally. God sees us as in Christ, so because of that, then should we not worry about being holy or righteous? Because positionally we already are. Certainly not. We should concern ourselves with being holy and righteous, even though, or I shouldn't say even though, but because of the fact that our nature has changed and our position has changed, then now we should live according to our new nature. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us do that. It's very important we don't get confused the difference between justification which means declared righteous by God based on the work of Christ, not of ourselves, 
based on what He has done. And then the second thing is sanctification. So this idea of sanctification, uh, sanctification starts in chapter 6 and goes all the way through chapter 8. So sanctification, different than justification. Justification takes place in a moment, in an instant. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're declared righteous. We have a standing with God that cannot change. Our position is set and secure. Our sins have been washed away. But then now practically, we, we still have to live our life, right? So the moment we get saved, we're not transported up into heaven and glorified. So we're still here. We're saved, but we're still here. We're positionally in Christ. We're secure in Christ. But man, we're still here. And if you are saved and positioned in Christ, you realize that being here means, wow, that's kind of a struggle. Because I still struggle with sin. That's what sanctification is all about. So sanctification is all about a process that God does in us to make us more like Him, to separate us from ourself and the world. And this is a process that lasts a lifetime. It will be completed when we take our last breath here or if we're raptured. It will be completed at that moment, and we will be finally complete in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, that's what we're looking at. Chapter 6 through chapter 8, today we're in chapter 8. We're looking at how we get through this life walking with God, although we have these bodies that have not been glorified yet and still have sin. And so there is a struggle. How do we win that struggle? How do we grow in Christ? How do we uh, enjoy the things that God has given us? How do we please God? All of those things. And so chapter 8 really sums it up. Chapter 7, you remember last week, is very heavy. But it is Paul's discussion about the difficulty that it is being a Christian and redeemed, and saved, and having the power of the Holy Spirit, and these desires to want to be like Christ, and yet that struggle that goes on. And so he, he would say that, I do things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. So that's the struggle that he was talking about. And that's the struggle of a Christian. And then he ends chapter 7 with this in verse 24. This is where we ended up last time. He says, O wretched man that I am. That's his, his struggle with the understanding of his true condition as a sinful man, even though he has been redeemed and positioned in Christ. He's recognizing the sinful condition of his body and he hates it. And he cries out, O Wretched man that I am, who, notice who, not what, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. 
And so that, that really was sort of the summary of this struggle that he's been having in these phrases and these words about the law and sin and death and the old man and the new man. We've covered that. But we start with this incredible chapter. Donald Gray Barnhouse, if you ever sort of studied and looked at commentaries, is a, a guy that you read about a lot. He was a pastor and a theologian. And he was asked one time if he was stuck. Oh, actually, he asked a group of pastors at a pastor's conference. If, if um, He asked them, if you were all stuck on a deserted island and you could have not just one book, but you could only have one chapter of the Bible, what would it be? And all 40 of them said chapter 8 of the book of Romans. So that tells you this is significant. So what is it about? This is the key to living our life in this world and not being of this world. This is the key to how to live triumphantly as, which we'll see in this chapter, as more than conquerors. And it all has to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer when a believer gets saved. You remember that term that we've been using for saved? What's it called? Starts with a J. Nicole, I think, got it. Yes, justified. I want to give Nicole credit on that one. Justified. So what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. And you may recall that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to go, go away. And they are all troubled, John 14 and John 15. And they're very troubled. And he told them, he said, it's going to be better when I go for you because I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send a helper. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I just find that fascinating because in most cases of people that just seem to never move forward, never get over the hump, they just seem to be stuck constantly and miserable in their own Christianity, it's because of that. They don't understand the empowering of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit and what God has given us to get through. And so this chapter deals with this. It deals with how oftentimes believers look to their own self to complete the work of God. In other words, to live as a Christian even saved and indwelt with the Holy Spirit by your flesh instead of by the Spirit. It's possible that many, many believers, maybe some of you, don't even know how to live in the Spirit, how to allow the Spirit to have control. And if you don't, you're going to have a very difficult time because it is the empowering of the Holy Spirit which you have been indwelt with, with which is the gift that enables you to enjoy your life in Christ in this world. And that's why chapter 8 starts with this verse. There is therefore, so therefore is connecting it to everything that he said specifically in chapter 7. Now, currently, right now, there's no condemnation. That word no is, 
emphatic. It's not just like R, no. It's absolutely not, not ever. There is absolutely no, not ever, any condemnation from God to the believer in any way, shape, or form that can be caused by anything that we do. Now, why is that? Because it's all been settled at the cross. The condemnation that we deserve, Jesus took. And when he said it is finished, that was part of what was finished, is the condemnation, is the guilt and the shame. So Satan tempts us to sin. He can't make us sin because he has no power or dominion over us. So what he does is he goes fishing for us and he puts things out there like bait to entice us, but we of our own volition have to do it. He can't make us before he can make us. But now we have a greater power than sin and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he can entice us and when we take the bait, and we sin, it doesn't change our position. It doesn't change the fact that we're in Christ. But what happens is when, when we sin, it causes a disruption in our fellowship with God. We, we feel it. It causes a, a, a problem in the, the spirit, a quenching of the spirit or a grieving of the spirit so something happens, and that's why in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us the answer to do that. And it says, if we confess our sins, and that, that word confess means to agree with or to think the same as. So when we sin and we make excuses or justify or say, well, I did it because of this, I did it because of this, and I couldn't help it, and all these things, that's not confessing your sin. Confessing your sin is saying, God, I was wrong, and what I did was wrong. And I agree with you, God, it was wrong. Please forgive me. So as believers, we repent to restore fellowship. It's sort of like in a, on a human level, if you have an issue with someone, it messes up your relationship, right? So you may still have a relationship, but if, if there's an undealt with problem, it kind of messes up your relationship. It, it hurts the fellowship. So what is the solution to that? The Bible gives us the solution to that. And it's to apologize. And then the apology should be met with the forgiveness. And then there's restoration there in the relationship. So as a sinner, when or I'm sorry, as a a born-again believer, when we sin, first of all, we have to understand it doesn't change our status with God. Now, that's huge, and I don't want you to miss that because I have a lot of conversations with people that are riddled with guilt and begin to question if they're even saved or not. And it's not for me to say if they're saved or not. I don't know people's hearts but I can tell them what the Bible says, and, and that's if you've truly put your faith in Jesus Christ, 
then that's a settled issue that you're a new believer in Christ. And we do see in the Bible that that believers sin. The Bible says he who says he's without sin is a liar. So if you say you're sinless, then you just sin and you lied about your sin. So we are sinful. We're redeemed in Christ. We're positioning Christ. Satan is still alive and well. We're still in a fallen world. And we still have these bodies that are sinful. So the first thing that we have to know is we should not fall into Satan's trap of condemnation. See, what happens is, I'm sure, I'm sure all of you know this, he tempts you to sin, you give in to that temptation, you sin, and then you feel horrible, and then Satan comes in and tells you how horrible you are tells you don't go to church anymore because all those people think you're terrible too. And then all the other people are thinking, I don't want to go to church either because I'm terrible. And that's condemnation. Condemnation will keep you from God. And so how there is no condemnation, that's God saying, don't let anything keep you, especially Satan, keep you from continuing on in me. Don't fall in the double trap of being seduced into sin, and then now allowing condemnation to settle in your life to the extent to where now you're going backwards at a rate that's faster and faster and faster. Instead, realize my position is established in Christ. I sinned. Lord, I'm sorry that I sin. I agree with you that I sin. I am wrong to sin. Please forgive me. And when you do that, your, your fellowship is restored with God. You're walking like Amos 3.3. 3. Can two walk together unless they're in agreement? So when you're in unrepentant sin, as a believer, there's friction. You're not in agreement with God. And the answer is to fall on your face and cry out and say, Forgive me, Lord. And He does. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And that's practically, right? So don't get mixed up positionally and practically justified and sanctified. So this is the walk. There's no more condemnation. That's out the door. So it's on the cross. Jesus took your condemnation. So when Satan tries to put condemnation on you, you just point to the cross. So from there, look where we go. To those who are in Christ Jesus, that's the key. That's why we don't have condemnation anymore. Because our position is in Christ Jesus. And it's very important for you to understand that. And last week I sort of illustrated that by putting a three-by-five card in my Bible and shutting it. And as you look at my Bible with that three-by-five card in, you just see the Bible. You don't see the three-by-five card. I could have written all my sins on there in red and stuck it in there and closed it, and you would have just saw my Bible. That's what it's like to be in Christ. That's why there's no condemnation. Because we're in Christ. So that's the key. We're in Christ. When we get saved, we're in Christ And we're positioned there. So then he says, 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, many commentators, and me as well, believe that that part should not be in there. And that's a disputed text right there. The reason is, is because, it, one, it doesn't really fit the context of what's being said. Two, that same phrase is in verse 4. And many people believe that that's a copyist error. And it wasn't in the oldest manuscripts. Maybe not that serious, but what can happen is if you read that, you might think there's a condition on no condemnation. So you might miss the whole context of the whole chapter and, and think, as long as I'm doing good and walking with God, then there's no condemnation. So you, so you have to be careful about that. No condemnation is because we're in Christ Jesus. But watch this. For the law, here's the reason, for. Whenever you see for, that means the reason. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has, past tense, made me free from the law of sin and death. And I know I'm taking my time here, and that's why I only want to do one chapter this week, and we'll see if we get through this chapter. But these words are very important. When he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ, what he's saying is, there's a, a new driving force in a believer that they have that they did not have. And he's comparing how we have changed, our nature has changed. So when that word law is used, it really is referring to sort of what our driving force in life is, what our principles are. Uh, a way to compare it is to think about the law of gravity. So that it's not like a law that someone made up. It's just the way things work. Does that make sense? So you might say the mode of operandi. Have you ever heard of that term? What's his M.O.? Uh, another way to think of that is um, our, our respiratory system. So we don't think about breathing. You probably haven't thought about your breathing, but you've been breathing because there's some, a, a law that God has set in motion in your body to keep your breathing, to keep your heart rate going. There's something, uh, some uh, organized pattern that does something to allow something to function or work. So understanding that, now it's amazing, and, and I like the analogy of gravity, because now there's a, a new law at work in us, a, a new way that we function in, in life, and it's according to the Spirit and not according to the law. So for example, the law of gravity, if we're going to use that, 9.8 meters per second, I believe, right? That's gravity's pushing down on us. Pretty sure you can look that up. 
but gravity is pushing down on us, right? What would happen if it didn't? We'd be floating, right? So there's a, a force in place in the world that pushes down on us. That's why we get so short when we get older, and that's why we get so wrinkly. One of the reasons we're getting pushed down on. But see, there's, a, there's another law at work as we sit here close to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. If you go outside, you will see something fascinating. There will be giant, heavy airplanes going through the air, defying gravity. Why? Because there's other laws at work. The laws of aviation, the laws of physics. So when we see these planes, it's marvelous, it's amazing going through the air, but they're able to do that because they're able to defy the law of gravity. Now that doesn't mean gravity is not there. It means that there's another law in place that is being used to work for airplanes. And it works. So understanding that, let's read chapter. Uh, verse 2 again. So he says, "For the there's no condemnation because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. So before we were believers, we were under, say, gravity, and we were bound to sin, and the wages of sin, sin always leads to death. So the fact that people die is a demonstration that there is sinful people in a sinful world, that we have all sinned. Because before sin entered, there was no death. When sin entered, there's death. But now what he's saying, hey, look, there's no condemnation. But I want you to understand that as a born-again believer, there's something else working in you. And it's this new law that defies the law of sin and death. It's greater than that. But this new law doesn't make sin and death, that law, go away. It just allows us to have a greater way to operate and function that's greater than sin and death. Does that make sense? So in verse 3, he explains that. And whenever you see 4, you're going to see that a lot in this chapter. He's explaining it and explaining it and explaining it. He says, for what the law could not, uh, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So you might want to circle or underline that. God did something that now like the Ten Commandments. Now we're back on the Ten Commandments or uh, a way to understand that God has given us moral, righteous requirements. And he said, live up to these and you'll, you'll be accepted by me. So what is required to be right with God is to meet his righteous requirements or his moral standards given. And that's in thought. It's in intention and motivation. It's in action. It's not just I didn't do something. It's the motivation. It's the thought. So that's why we know all is sin. So the law... Because we're sinful, it couldn't help us. It actually just messed us up even more. 
because it pointed out how messed up we were and, and are. So that's what he's saying. It's, the law was weak through the flesh, but now God did something by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul is really using his words really carefully here. You know why? He says in the likeness of sinful flesh because Jesus did not have sin in His flesh. That was why He was able to go to the cross for our sins. So He's being very careful. Like, look, He took on, God took on a body of a human being in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful flesh. He was sinless. And then He says, He did that on account of sin. So the reason Jesus came and took on a body, a human body, was because of our sin. And it says, He condemned sin in the flesh. That, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law, what was that? What was God's requirement? In other words, if you want to stand before me, if you want to go to heaven if you want to have a relationship with me, there's a requirement. And he calls it a righteous requirement. So we've been talking about it. Just explain it. It means moral perfection. So you might say there's two ways that one can get to heaven. One, no human being has ever been able to accomplish this, that they would be perfect. So... If you can count on your perfection, then you can make it. But because we can't, and nobody could, God sent His Son who could do that. And because He could do that, He was able to go to the cross to take our sins as a sacrifice and a replacement for us so that by faith we can access Jesus and His finished work on the cross. This is amazing. So verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice, not by us. In us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that now we're getting into this practical how do we walk as believers in verse 5 it says for those who live according to the flesh they set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit so now he's talking about this dual nature that a believer has and how to walk correctly with Him. Already positioned in Christ, already set, already no condemnation coming our way. And now the way we practically do it is we set our minds not on trying to be good. Not on trying not to do something. 
we set our minds on Christ. So, so this is amazing because notice again in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, they're constantly thinking about how to fulfill their fleshly desires. They're dominated by their desires. Philippians chapter 3 talks about this and it says there are those among us who are enemies of the cross. And it says their God is their belly. In other words, they live according to their fleshly desires. Their God is their bellies. Their passion in life is to fulfill and gratify the desires of their flesh. And because of that, they're enemies of the cross. And so the cross factors in to this because now we're keeping our focus on Christ. We're being careful and mindful of the fact that we're setting Christ before us uh, continually, that we're sowing to our mind and not to our flesh. And that's how, how we do it. So, for example, another analogy. So in, in baseball, when you're up to bat, the first goal is to get to first base. So if you're up to bat and you're looking at first base all the time, what's going to happen? Are you going to hit the ball? No. You're supposed to say no on that. Okay, from the very first time you start playing t-ball, what, what, what do they tell you? Keep your eye on the ball. So the goal is to get to first base, but you do that by keeping your eye on the ball. For a believer, we keep our eyes on Christ. And we keep our minds filled with the things of Christ. We meditate on the Word day and night. And you know what happens when we do that? We're walking with Christ. We're not sinning. We're walking in the power of the Spirit. We're walking in the goodness of God. It's sort of like Peter when, we, when he walked on water. right? It went really good in the beginning, right? But there's all these temptations from the ocean saying, look at me, look at me. And what would happen when he would look at the ocean and take his eyes off of Christ? He started sinking. So that's what happens with us. But see, we don't even have to worry about trying not to sin and trying to be good. Just keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your heart and your mind set on the things above and not on the things of earth. And as you do that, then you'll get through life in the power of the Holy Spirit. You won't be in this repetitive cycle of sin, but you will break it by keeping your eyes on Jesus. And that's what he's saying. And then he says in verse 6, he says, For to be carnally minded, you know what carnal means? Fleshly. Some of you for dinner may have had chili con carnally tonight. But that's, that word actually means flesh or meat. So to be 
carnally or fleshly minded. And listen, we have to be intentional because you and I are faced with all sorts of visual, audio, audio, um, tactile. All of our senses are constantly being bombarded with sinful presentations to our senses. And that's why we have to be intentional, but that's also why Satan does the things he does. That's why the world is the way the world is, is because the world is under control of the enemy, and because of that, the enemy is looking to distract us and get our eyes off of Christ. And so he'll throw the kitchen sink at us. And a lot of times we're just like lambs being led to the slaughter with our social media and all this, and we're just we're gobbling it up and we're wondering why we're stumbling all the time. Well, it's because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. And you're not taking that seriously. I'm try- I don't want to exaggerate, so I don't want to give an exact number, but at least in my mind, it seems weekly that I get reports, calls, letters, emails, texts about some catastrophe, about a life falling apart, a marriage or whatever. And it's because of this. It's because of an accepting and taking in and not taking seriously this particular scripture. And thinking, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, but yet not taking seriously the walk that one has. And although one may be positionally right with God, it does not mean that we are immune to the effects of sin if we choose to walk in that fashion. If I go out of here and go to the bar over there, and drink until I can't stand up anymore, and then get in my car and drive, and I hit somebody, well, I'm going to be responsible for that. So I can't say, well, God will protect me, and God, well, He's given us how to walk, how to live, how to deal with it. And I'm just telling you, I've been here for almost 20 years at this particular church, and I've been on staff in another church for five years before I came here, and, and I, if I had a calculator, it would be hard to number the amount of people that don't take this seriously and their lives end up in ruins. And I'm saying that because this is very serious. Because you could be saved and you can ruin your life because you don't take this seriously. And you take it lightly. And you look at God and the things of God as an option. And I'm saying you, but I mean me too. And we all know the pastors. We hear them all the time. This falling, falling, falling. And it's because of this. It's that one simple scripture. It's taking your eyes off Jesus. Putting your eyes on yourself, on the things of this world, and not repenting from that and just continuing on. And you know what? Your heart starts to get hardened. Sin starts to look better and better and better. The things of God start to look worse and worse and worse. Your Bible looks heavier and heavier and heavier. You begin to go through the motions. 
You come into church and sing songs, but it's not in your heart. You're just mouthing words. You step back from the opportunities that you've been given to pray for other people, to stir up your gifts, to exercise your gifts. And I'm just telling you, it's not possible to survive like that without experiencing the sting and the ramifications of sin that will come your way. And the reason is we don't take Satan seriously. You remember Jesus? He told Peter, look, Satan is looking to sift you as wheat. That's pretty serious, isn't it? So we can't take these things lightly. Otherwise, we become a casually, not positionally, but practically. And we can rebound. And many people rebound. David in the Bible rebounded. Many people rebounded. And there is rebounding in the Lord, but much better not to experience the catastrophe. So, verse 6, to be carnally minded is death. So you, you might just want to put that up somewhere as a reminder that you can see it all the time. And look, if you're mind is fleshly and worldly, the only thing there is death. It might be that death of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the death of your ministry, the death of a relationship, the the death of your career or your job, something. But something's going to die. Because the payment of sin, sin pays you. When you sin, it pays you. Here you go. And what is that payment? It's death. However, in verse 6, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What a contrast, isn't it? So to have our minds on the things of God, the glories of God, the goodness of God, and to begin to exercise The things in your mind of God, now what's happening is the mindful things that you have of God, they begin to take on actions. And you begin to serve in the things of God. And when you serve in the things of God, you begin to see the fruit of God. And when you see the fruit of God, you begin to get excited about God, how He's using you, and you want to be more fruitful. So you think about God more. And as you think about God more, then you want to serve more and exercise your gift more and God's blessing and giving you peace that goes beyond understanding. And and that's how it works. So in verse 7, he says it again, because the carnal mind is enmity against God or hatred against God. So when, when we allow our minds to be filled with fleshly world thing, worldly things, and that's something we have to fight. Let's remember. When we allow it and we don't find, fight it, it puts us at odds with God. There's friction there. Again, not positionally, but practically in fellowship. And when we walk out of fellowship with God, just like David when he sinned with Bathsheba, just pulled back a little bit, a little disobedient, 
a little comfortable, a little lackadaisical, a little resting on his past, resting on his laurels, and then the opportunity came. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, compares it to a battle. That's why he he talks about the weapons of our warfare. So he talks about a a spiritual battle. He says uh, in verse 7, for about the carnal mind, it's not subject to the law of God. It's rebellious. So the carnal mind pushes back against God. It'll push back against the people of God who try to restore or encourage in the things of the Lord or speak to them about it. It'll push back. It won't want to hear it. So that's kind of like another step. Wherein our minds were rebelling against God, and we're, we're not repenting, we're not remorseful, but, but then we're, now we're rebelling against the people of God because it's not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. Verse 8, it says, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you're a believer, you can raise your hand and say, the Spirit of God dwells in me. Every believer has the Holy Spirit in them. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's the higher principle. The higher principle is that that old person before we got saved, who, who was leading us into sin and was filled with sin that was our boss and controlling us, that person died when we got saved and we've raised again to this newness of life where a different law is in place and it's the law of the Spirit. And so even though we still have these bodies which we struggle against, we have an even greater principle and that's the Spirit. We're spiritual now. So before we're born again, we're not spiritual. That died in the Garden of Eden. So the spiritual aspect of our humanness died, and that's the connection that we have with God. It died in the garden, and every human being born after Adam possessed that death of the spiritual nature of man, but Jesus restored that on the cross, and now we're spiritual again. So the spiritual nature of of us, of a believer, is really what drives us and controls us albeit we have a struggle against the flesh. So, look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life or give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So he's telling you the power that you have 
to walk in the goodness of God in the Spirit is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that resurrected Jesus. So that's the power that we have to live the resurrected life. And what he's specifying and and what's important there is he's telling us that the power of Christ in us is greater than the power of our flesh that's in us. And so now we, as, as we keep our eyes on Christ, then this greater power will be working in and through our life. And that's how we walk and live our life as believers. So verse 12, it says, Therefore, so because of all that, brethren, we are debtors, or we owe not, nothing to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's how you do it. You live by the Spirit, and when you live by the Spirit, you're not walking in the flesh. So it's not, and this is the mistake that he's pointing out, not trying to do certain things. So if you're struggling with the sin, most likely it's because you're trying not to do it. And when you're trying not to do it, you're using willpower. And willpower is not greater than sin's power. But the power of the Spirit is much greater than the power of sin. And so instead of not trying to do something, instead we do something in the Lord. We keep our mind on Him and we walk in the Spirit. And when we're walking in the Spirit, we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So that's how you do it. That's how you break addictions. That's how you break these patterns of sins. The the Puritans used to, to call them pet sins. The ones you keep around, you don't think they're too bad and just kind of they hang, hang around. But I want to tell you that the, the Lord wants that out of your life. He has so much more for you. And so when Satan puts the bait out, when you're feeling tempted, and, and if it's in that habitual pattern sin, the answer is, okay, I'm going to try not to do this. That's not the answer. The answer is, hey, if you need to rip out your Bible and get on your knees and start praying and singing praise songs to the Lord, do that. Because if you're in some secret pattern of sin, it's very hard to have your Bible out and sin with the Bible out. And people often say, well, I can't help it or the devil made me do it. But in in many of those cases... So if someone has some secret sin, say pornography, because that's like the secret, that's like destroying so many people's lives. And people say, well, I'm addicted to it. I can't help it. Well, would, would you do that if you were sitting right here in church? So if there is a, a computer up there, and it, would you go up there in front of everybody? You wouldn't do that. So you do have a power not to do it. You're just selective about it. So that, that just shows you, you do have the power not to do it. And so when that bait bait comes out, 
immediately you realize and recognize what's going on and you set your mind on the things of Christ. And whatever that means for you to do, if you need to get your Bible out, if you need to call your friends up and pray with them, whatever it is, if, if you need to start singing hallelujahs to the Lord, if you need to take a walk and spend time with the Lord, whatever it is, well, it's that serious that you do whatever it takes to get your mind on the things of the Lord. Because in verse 14, as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For if you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. What he's telling us here is that's our new nature. Our new nature is not like before where we can be controlled and manipulated by fear. That's often how Satan works in a person's life who doesn't have the Holy Spirit or who is being tempted to walk away from the Spirit. Fear is a big thing. But he's saying when you receive Christ, you received in you a spirit who cries out, Abba or Daddy. Father, this is a personal relationship. It's amazing because when you go to Israel, you see these little kids and they're with their parents and they're saying, Abba, 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 Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. But this is what this means. This, is, this means that when we're born again, we have a relationship with God that's such that we can go to Him, we can cry out to Him, we can ask Him for help, that He receives us, that He welcomes us, that He loves us, that He provides for us like a father would. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. This is our position. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Verse 18, he says, Now I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in, in us. So the recognition here of the struggle, of the difficulty, one, as believers positioned in Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit, but yet the struggle that we have in life, but also not just that struggle we have to walk with God, but the, the struggle that every believer has in the persecution from the world and from other people being ostracized or being made fun of or left out or just feeling like not a part of this world, families separating and all these things. And the way Paul is saying is saying, look, you have to understand what you're going through. And I've said this so many times in counseling people. This is huge. And in counseling myself. Whatever I'm going through, you have to compare it to future glory. Because if I don't do that, it's going to look really big.
But if I take what I'm going through and compare it to future glory, you know how big it looks? You can barely even see it. The bigger your view of future glory, the smaller your thing will look. So you have to compare, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, and he's acknowledging it's hard. And, and uh, for Paul, it's really hard. And for, for a lot of you, for all of us, it's hard. But he's saying, look, what awaits you in future glory? There's going to be one day, you're going to say it's all worth it. And I know many people, including myself, that have the hard things that I've gone through in my life, I say it's worth it. I can look back and say, well, that was worth it. It's hard to say when you're right in the middle of it. But when you get through it and you experience all the things that God does through it, you'll say it was worth it. But here's the thing. As we compare what we go through, the trials in life, as we compare that to future glory. So what are you saying? One is that our trials and our sufferings are contributing to our experience of eternity. So a lot of times we think of our trials and we think, well, like Job, he went through his trials, but at the end he got double. So I can't wait till the end, then I'm just going to get double replacement for what I got. And that may be, and that happens a lot. But there's something even better. You have this like account in heaven that your trials are contributing to. So much so that when you get to heaven, you're going to be like, I'm so glad that God allowed me to go through these trials on earth because now my whole future glory will be experienced in this way because of what I went through in that temporary short time compared to eternal bliss. So could it be that not only are your trials contributing to your sanctification here on earth, but your trials may be contributing, actually are, I'll say, contributing to your experience in eternity forever. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. That means that even creation recognizes and realizes how messed up everything is. And it like groans. And you just think like the earth and the trees. He's saying he's personifying them. He's saying that they're aching. In other words, God's creation hates this world the way it is, this fallen world. Cicada season's coming out soon. That always reminds me of this. this. Those things are... Well, that's, I'm not going to get off on those things. Those things are like prehistoric. Man, I hate those things. But have you ever heard them? They're groaning. That's what it sounds like. But notice what they're groaning for. Did you see that? That's easy to miss. They're, they're groaning and waiting for you and I to be what we're supposed to be. And that means glorified bodies. So you think you're aching 
for your glorified body. And you're experiencing all these aches and pains in your body, but not only that, the struggle with sin. And he's saying, all creation is all messed up because they want you to be glorified too. They're waiting for you to be set right and made right and perfected and glorified. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to the futility and not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also will have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption of the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we feel how out of sync we are with God in these fallen bodies. And especially this month, a lot of you are like, man, this month, June, the things that I see And the things that are going on, the fallen nature of this world turning rainbows upside down and and bragging about things the Bible condemns and children being exposed to these things. And we're groaning. We're like, come on, Lord. How long? How bad does it have to be? And this is explicitly what Jesus or what Paul is recording here. He's saying, I get it. Everything is all messed up but it's not always going to be. Because in verse 24, and by the way, we're going to go over just maybe like a few minutes. If you need to leave, go for it, but it won't be very long. He says, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? And he's saying, what we see is not how it's going to be, right? Otherwise, there would be no hope, right? So let's say, for example, you say, well, before you came tonight, I hope I see Steve tonight. And now you see Steve. Steve, can you raise your hand? <laughs> so you don't hope you see Steve anymore. You see Steve. So what are you saying is there's... Something waiting, future, that you long for and hope for, that inside of you you're groaning for, and that's proof that there's something greater that, than what you see, touch, feel, hear, and all that. And that's the hope we have. And the hope is assurance, not maybe if. It's, it's going to happen. We're just waiting for it. Verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So that's how we do it. We wait with perseverance. We stay the course. We understand it's coming. If you know it's coming, you can stay the course. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray. Have you ever felt like that? You don't know what to pray for? 
for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. For it says, Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit knows our inner person and as we cry out to the Lord, and maybe that might be tongues, but not necessarily that, and not only that, could be part of that. I believe it's part of that, but I also believe just our the inside hurt and groaning, and we don't even know how to pray, and the Holy Spirit takes that, and He makes it into the right prayer. How cool is that? Verse 28, and we know, do you know? I hope you know that all things work together for good. Do you know that? To those, so it's a qualification, not for everybody, but to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose, which every believer is, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined. This is just a continual progressive work of God in the believer's life to be conformed into the image of His Son, that sanctification, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom He predestined, these He also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, He also has glorified. So obviously, Tons to say about that, a lot of arguments about that. But the point is, God is working in our life to bring us to that final glorification of our bodies with Christ. So let's finish with this last section, which reads really well all together. That's why I knew we could get through this fast. Just take this in, because this is just the capstone of everything. What then shall we say to all the things we talked about. Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who died, or I'm sorry, he who did not spare his own son, here's the proof, but he delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him, Jesus, also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love 
of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and listening online. Lord, I pray that these scriptures would be written on our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to walk in the Spirit and enjoy this life in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, only five minutes after. So God bless you guys. Thank you for your grace. Have a good night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.